This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big thanks to all the great folks who checked out the show last week for our season premiere with Jim Mars. The hits at BOA were through the roof, and it is very reassuring to know that our outstanding audience has found the program up and running once again. So big thanks to everybody who checked out the show and all the awesome websites and blogs that posted links to our season premiere. Now that we have that in the rearview mirror, it's time for episode number two, and it's something we're calling a Halloween Hangover edition of BOA Audio. The meaning behind that is it seems like during the Halloween season, people are so in the mood for Halloween that they'll listen to just about any ghost story and blindly accept it because it's sort of part of the fabric of the holiday. And in a lot of ways, that is what the Spiritcom story is. It's a ghostly story that a lot of people just blindly accepted. Since this is the Halloween Hangover edition of BOA Audio, we're going to have a sober look at the Spiritcom story with emerging instrumental transcommunication researcher Dr. Stephen Rourke. I was communicating with Dr. Rourke throughout the summer, getting ready to set up the interview, and you could tell just from the emails he was sending me that he was chomping at the bit to blow the lid off the Spiritcom story. He has really unearthed an amazing amount of material. In this conversation, Stephen's going to provide us with an in-depth examination of the infamous esoteric tale that is the Spiritcom story. We're going to look at the players behind the story. We're going to find out why Dr. Rourke believes Spiritcom is a hoax, and if it was a hoax, who was behind it and why. Plus, we're going to find out about the true story of Thomas Edison's reported attempts to communicate with the dead. We're going to learn who is perpetuating the Spiritcom hoax still today, where the device is in 2008, and a plethora of more material in this very richly detailed episode. We're going to take a whole new view of an often overlooked or blindly accepted esoteric story the Spiritcom Factor Fiction here on the Halloween Hangover edition of BOA Audio. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Stephen Rourke, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Dr. Stephen Rourke has experience as a professor of physics for Loyola College, instructing Masters of Science courses at the university level, has undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral degrees, and is currently pursuing postdoctoral research in the cognitive sciences. He has lectured on developmental psychology, cognition, theoretical and applied physics, and EVP, electronic voice phenomena, as a subject of ITC, instrumental transcommunication, with potential implications for the theoretical physics community regarding the existence of multi-dimensions beyond the standard model. Dr. Rourke's most recent studies include the application of information theory, persuasion theory, and certain aspects of psychology to the paranormal. Dr. Rourke possesses best evidence standards in paranormal research and leads the way in his conclusive investigation 
of the Enduring Spiritcom Mystery, found at spiritcomstudy.com. Dr. Stephen Rourke has advocated for nearly a decade that the role of science should be to investigate the unexplained, not explain the uninvestigated. As noted, his website is www.spiricomstudy.com, S-P-I-R-I-C-O-M-S-T-U-D-Y dot com. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on September 24th, 2008. Dr. Stephen Rourke talking about the Spiricom, Fact or Fiction, on BOA Audio, Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I've got a very interesting guest on tap for you here this week. We're going to be delving into the ghost realm, but from a totally different perspective, unearthing one of what I like to call uh, Esoterica's Lost Mysteries. And that's one of these stories that was really pretty big for a while, and it sort of keeps bubbling into the surface again, but it exists on the fringes of Esoterica, the Spiritcom story that is very well known amongst the hardcore students of Esoterica. I'm sure many people have heard about it. And our guest, Dr. Stephen Rourke, he's a researcher, he's an academic. He contacted me this summer and supplied me with a wealth of his research into the Spiritcom story and how he has uncovered aspects to the story that suggest that it is definitely not what we've been led to believe over these years. We're going to really dig into the Spiritcom story and look at it. Spiritcom or Spiritcon, that's what we're going to be discussing here tonight on the program. Dr. Stephen Rourke, welcome to Banal of America Audio. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. I'm excited to uh, be able to showcase your research here. I know you've only done a few appearances so far, no book yet, and uh, just cut, sort of got the website up, so you're just breaking into the scene right now with your Spiritcom research. So I'm excited to really uh, delve into this subject with you, because as I noted in the introduction, a lot of people have only sort of tangentially heard about Spiritcom, and uh, they're going to learn a lot more about it here tonight. Great. Let's start out with your bio, your background. You know, who is Dr. Stephen Rourke? And lead us into how you sort of discovered the Spiritcom story and, and how it came into your life. Well, I know credibility is, is important to folks, but actually um, the only thing they need to know is that I bring to the research, even to something so esoteric as the Spiritcom story, I bring to the research the academic research acumen gained through my uh, professional career. Um, I'm, in fact, a, a graduate of a doctoral studies program at Wilmington University. I'm engaged in postdoctoral research. This is, however, completely unrelated to my professional life. It's just a um, an interest uh, born out of the implications of, originally, um, EVP, electronic voice phenomenon. I came to collaborate with Jim Hale, who at the time was with an organization uh, called CPRI, and Jim Hale and I were discussing the implications of EVP in terms of uh, quantum physics, the way that um, these voices may, in fact, at some level, be evidence for a many-worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics mm-hmm. uh, under Tegmark kind of later and uh, originally under uh, Everett's interpretation. So I frame it that way because there's a reason folks should look into things like Spiritcom, which is a... Uh, a case that claims to hold the best evidence of real-time two-way communication between a living operator of a device and a deceased entity. And with claims like that, well, gee, I think it, I think it deserves uh, a full 
full and complete investigation instead of just a offhanded perpetuation of a myth because it might uh, agree with certain people's predetermined belief systems. Well, we always have to double-check and triple-check and quadruple-check the stories in the world of esoterica, that's for sure, and I'm glad that someone stepped up to the plate on Spiritcom and taken a look at it. Let's start out, of course, with the, you know, the story of Spiritcom, as far as what people already know, uh, not including what you've uncovered. Uh, what, what's the general popular story that is Spiritcom to, to bring folks up to speed on what we're going to be delving into? Sure. Uh, well, first is the name of the device it's called Spiricom as a short for as a short name for its project because Spiricom is essentially a nickname for uh, what was an experimental purported to be a spirit communication system that came to achieve a sort of legendary status in the field of instrumental transcommunication uh, or ITC um, ITC itself just for context in case folks are newcomers is a uh, fairly new branch of paranormal um, pursuits. I hesitate to say paranormal research, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, an acronym for this fairly new branch of paranormal pursuits in which um, experimenters of all kind utilize sometimes elaborate, sometimes quite simple electronic devices. It could be tape recorders or it could be something as complex as the Spiricom, which we'll discuss. <laughs> they are claiming to attempt to make contact with beings from supernormal realms or other dimensions of consciousness or existence, or even in the case of Dr. Raymond Cass, a contemporary of Dr. Raudova's, who uh, wrote a book called Breakthrough and essentially uh, popularized EVP in a way that no other had. Um, Dr. Raymond Cass well, his theory was that these were alien voices. So there's a real, um, there's quite an array of theories for where these voices come from, which is what makes um, EVP, ITC so interesting. And just again, for further context, I know we're specifically discussing Spiricom, but uh, EVP really should be considered, electronic voice phenomenon, a subset of the larger instrumental transcommunication attempts made by these experimenters. Uh, EVP itself deals strictly, obviously, with audio, and ITC can include video and all kinds of other equipment to make attempts. So yeah. I just kind of lay that out now for the purposes of our discussion. Absolutely. Sounds good. Okay, so uh, from, its, from its original creation, its actual conception through its development, um, Spiricom, stands as one of the best documented cases. Uh, this is not now to make a judgment about the documentation. It is simply to say that there is a lot of documentation. Uh, so if we're going to coin a phrase, we'd say that it's got a, a, a high degree of researchability. In other words, you're not just left wondering. You can dig into the story. There's popular literature surrounding it. And um, uh, here's what it says, basically, that William O'Neill... Uh, was the creator, or should we say the developer and operator, of a Spiricom device called the Mark IV. And this was created under the aegis and funded by uh, George Meeks Metascience Foundation. The claims are many, but we're going to focus upon the primary claims, which are the purported communications with a deceased NASA scientist named Dr. George Mueller. Dr. George J. Mueller from 1979 
1981. And these are the claims of William O'Neill, and these are the claims popularized by George Meek at a press conference revealing the findings of MetaScience Foundation et al., and presented this Spearcom material uh, as exactly what I said, the the best evidence, actual proof of real-time two-way communication with a dead scientist. You see, Mueller would have been dead for at least 13 years at the time the original Spearcom recordings between this dead scientist and William O'Neill were made. Mm -hmm. So you can see that this is an extraordinary claim, and it goes above and beyond uh, the simple EVP of, you know, having what may sound like a voice on tape or something. This is a whole other level of evidence. And so it only makes sense to, to look at this particular data set because, again, it has a high degree of uh, researchability. When did uh, Meek hold the press conference to announce his findings and everything, in 81? Uh, you know, I believe that was 1983. Okay. Uh, I may actually be wrong on that on that date. Um, in the timeline of things that obviously came after the the conclusion of all the research into Spiricom and, and this connection, if you would, these, these recordings, the sessions between William O'Neill and this dead scientist kind of faded. Uh, and so after, after I think about a year of no further results by way of this Spearcom device, uh, they decided that, um, well, at least their theory was that this dead scientist Mueller had um, somehow moved on to higher heavenly realms and was <laughs> no longer of the lower vibration to be able to communicate with the earthly plane. This kind of language was involved in their, in their theory. It's a very, very new age kind of metaphysical ethos underpinned the entire research project. Yeah, the undead died again, if you will, and, and went on to the next level. Yes, yeah, there's always other levels and always an explanation for why something happens. Absolutely. Now, uh, is there more to the basic story, or is that pretty much it? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. If folks can grasp this outrageous claim that really begs for further investigation, I think the only other thing that would help them is to grasp the way the story's been popularized but not critiqued. Um, instead of looking at facts surrounding the story, uh, the story is embraced by folks uh, whose belief system, you know, this harmonizes with. So uh, people often adopt, let's say, a set of conclusions before thinking it through. And I think the folks that have a worldview, or should I say an otherworldly view, that, uh, that e EVP and ITC is possible as um, communication with deceased spirits or something, then obviously this is a great piece of evidence for them to further their um, particular world or otherworldly view. Absolutely, so yeah. So it's, it's a matter of, uh, of, of what agrees with their paradigm. Now, my, my worldview is one that requires um, evidence and documentation, and that's, that's where I find the beauty and interest in things. And believe me, the Spiritcom story is a whole lot more interesting when you look at all the evidence instead of just selecting evidence that fits with your preconceived notions of reality. Totally, totally, absolutely. And uh, we see it all the time in the paranormal world where people will just embrace a story regardless of whether it's true or not or whether it's been examined or anything like that. If it, if it confirms what they believe, 
then it's it's uh it's gospel to them. So that's the unfortunate part. But thankfully, we have people like you to uh, look into these. So let's talk about your main issues, I guess, with the Spiritcom story and and uh, what you've uncovered as far as facts and and information that seems to suggest that there's really much more going on here and that it was not what we've been led to believe. Okay. Well, let's let's start with um let's start with what you just said. Basically, the way stories. Uh, can become a part of a larger mythology, uh, and then this mythos kind of drives a an agenda or drives a perpetuation of a belief system. Um, let's talk about the birth of ITC. It's a great example how George Meek and the meta-science folks themselves often referred to the Scientific American 1926 article regarding Edison's attempt to communicate with the dead. Uh, this Scientific American article, because obviously it's about Thomas Edison and his supposed attempt to communicate with the dead, this is cited over and over again by not just George Meek, um, who is, is deceased now, but at the time it was cited frequently in presentations, uh, lectures, uh, published materials, and it still is today as evidence of how... Uh, ITC should be taken seriously by the scientific community because, after all, you know, Edison was looking into it, so it must be worthy of consideration. Well, the mythology surrounding this often referred to but, but rarely actually read article, uh, the mythology is that Edison was developing a device to communicate with the dead. However, if folks go to the microfiche, and this is a layer of effort I know most, most folks in the paranormal are not used to. But if they go to the actual primary source, a careful read shows that Edison himself made no such claims. And this was my first hint that all was not right with Spiritcom beyond its outrageous claims. All could not be correct with Metascience if they hadn't done this simple primary source document check of this article. Mm-hmm. So... A careful read shows that Edison made so much never made these kind of claims. So what did it say? Well, in the article, Edison is is merely responding in hypothetical terms to the reporter's line of inquiry. And the impression you get from the article is that Edison was like stopped on the street uh, around Halloween, and the author needed uh, you know the reporter needed an article. Yeah. So. Um, uh, there was no indication or reason to conclude that Edison was personally engaged in such, such an effort. Instead, the question was simply framed about communication with the dead through devices. The question was framed within the context of the times to give chance uh, to Edison to, to comment on the popularity of these uh, spiritualism fads that pervaded his uh, time. So it's very, it's very contextual and period piece driven. You have to understand what was going on back there with spirit mediums and uh, and all of this. So his comments, if the article's read carefully, were actually rather derogatory towards spiritualists and those involved in spiritism. Huh. So have ITC believers read the article in such a way as to advance their own cause? Have they even read the article? Have ITC proponents like George Meek and those in Metascience and like his modern-day contemporaries, have ITC proponents not actually read the article but used the misleading subtitle to lend their field of endeavor unearned credibility. And I would suggest the latter is 
probably what happened. They couldn't have honestly read it and completely misunderstood. If they had, they would have probably perfectly understood what was happening in the article. Yeah. yeah. So this this is, again, the first thread that needed to be pulled at and was also uh, the first time um, Jim Hale and I came to consider uh, researching the validity of Spiritcom. Um, it, it, Spiritcom, again, being considered by many the best ITC evidence proving that this is the claim that personality and memory survive death and that the Spiritcom project was essentially evidence of real-time electronic voice phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and so if there was to be this claim of best evidence, Jim Hale and I collaborated and discussed the idea of best evidence standards. And did Spiritcom meet the best evidence standards that EVP and ITC and paranormal studies in general would require? So the standards came to be proposed. They would need to be agreed upon and adhered to, and that's a whole other separate issue. But our suggestion was that evidence be gathered through a transparent and rigorous process and that it be corroborated in some way um, and that an attempt be made to falsify the findings and then finally take all that data and present it for peer review. This is something that is almost never done and this is the hallmark of pseudoscience when there is no peer review and there's a non-transparent process and so attempting to bring some scientific rigor to these supposedly scientific pursuits um, as you can imagine, this has not been wildly popular, but <laughs> there, there it is nonetheless. I've been banging this drum, P.S., since 2005, and um, I've never had anyone – I've had people email me about a whole lot of crazy stuff, but guess what? I've never had anyone email me and say, hey, I'd like to know more about those standards so I might adhere to the rigorous process. <laughs> so that hasn't happened yet. Uh, so the case in point – is in fact, you know, to be discussed, it's, it's Spiritcom, and, and it should be deconstructed in light of the, uh, of the best evidence standards. And I, I could actually run through those so you can understand the prism through which we look at Spiritcom and maybe even compare that later on to what I believe to be an actual case in point of, of, a, of an EVP or ITC meeting best evidence standards. Sure, sure, go for it. Excellent. Well, it's kind of an if-then statement. It's very logical. If the most convincing ITC EVP work ever done, Spiritcom, has misinformed investigators developing paranormal research protocol, um, then the standards of what those investigators consider reliable evidence is in question. So this is the need for new best evidence standards uh, and and. They've been formally proposed again by myself and Jim Hale by at least since 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, so first I suggest EVP ITC is worthy of standards that encourage, again, the scientific process, which is essentially legitimate, rigorous, methodical scientific investigation. I, I think it also deserves consideration as a potentially paranormal phenomenon. And just so folks know, the word perinormal is derived from the Greek peri, meaning in the vicinity of. Instead of para, meaning above, this means uh, in the vicinity of normal. So next and, to normal. What's that? Next to normal. Yes, yeah, essentially <laughs> it's it's something like uh, in, this whole EVP ITC thing uh, might might essentially be, well, how would I put it? If it's, if it's perinormal phenomenon, uh, this would fall into the category of unknown forces, which at first appear to be paranormal, 
and later are verified scientifically. There you go. Yeah, so if this were the case, if EVP ITC is in fact perinormal phenomenon worthy of standards of research, then it would require uh, treatment as a transient phenomenon beyond the standard model of physics. Um, hence the necessity to bring, let's say, theoretical concepts and mathematical constructs to bear upon the EVP ITC mystery. Mm -hmm. Now you're not going to, ha that is not going to happen unless you can, it can elicit from the academic community the um, theoretical concepts and mathematical constructs because, I mean, I'm suggesting your average bloke can't do that yeah. and that's not to condemn you know, your weekend ghost hunter. It's just to say that this is a mystery of such larger implications. It kind of needs interdisciplinary attention from the academic community. Uh, so that attention is only going to be made possible by some degree of disciplined inquiry and in gathering the evidence. And so EVP ITC, I think, is a good place to start. Uh, I don't really even find interesting implications in the bulk of what folks consider paranormal, but EVP ITC, I think, is particularly well-suited to a standards-based best practices approach to evidence gathering, and is, in fact, particularly well-suited for consideration as perinormal phenomenon because it's not generally subject to the three conditions often mistaken as, quote, the paranormal. And that those are namely uh, these conditions, by the way, that that lead folks to mistake events as paranormal are essentially sleep paralysis, um, associated hypnagogic hallucination, and uh, lastly, the subsequent sensed presence um, that folks describe. Now, EVP itself is still wide open to the problems of um, what's been called audio matrixing incorrectly, but is actually apophenia or paradilia, where you, where you find great meaning in things that actually have no meaning, or you use uh, your brain as a sense-making, pattern-seeking device, and out of what is essentially a stray radio communication or gibberish, you find some meaning. Yeah. So I, I clear that up to state that there are potential implications, that I'm not making any outright judgments about the validity of EVP itself. Okay. So the proposal just to be really clear of these best evidence standards, is short-term. It's a Band-Aid kind of approach, and uh, and here it is. Essentially, it's got to be a Band-Aid approach because the longer-term changes that need to be made to, quote-unquote, paranormal research are, um, uh, well, they're, they're, they're paradigm-shifting in their nature, so I, I wouldn't suggest uh, taking those as the first step. So the baby step would be first to have EVPs, that are gathered or ITC that is documented, it should be presented for uh, peer review and it should be only the really uh, clearest examples um, instead of kind of throwing noise into the data set. Uh, secondly, I suggest that it, it be only ambient recordings uh, without noise reduction at the time and certainly without the addition of quote-unquote white noise, uh, which my understanding is it's wildly popular, and uh, all it does is, is serve to muddy up the data set and really serve as like an audio Rorschach test for the listener. Yeah. And I also propose that duration and interaction be considered as a separate class rating. So in other words, if there's a 
particular site where you, let's say, get really long EVPs that are uncharacteristically long, most of them are very short kind of terse phrases, then that might kind of sit higher in the top rating. So some of the corroborative measures, and you'll be familiar with these through any general reading of scientific materials, the corroborative measures that should be taken are, let's say, replication. Um, so with similar conditions, you attempt to reproduce the results, because after all, repeatability, it's the cornerstone of the scientific process. And then after you make an attempt at replicating, if there's still something that could be considered peri or paranormal, then you make an attempt at a falsification of the evidence. This sounds bad to folks, you know, ooh, you're going to falsify evidence. That's not, <laughs> that doesn't mean that you make it a part of the record as real evidence. It simply means that you employ critical thinking to ask and experiment with a single guiding question. Could this evidence have been faked? If you do that, you can then exclude the possibilities that it was fake and maybe only the truly anomalous remains. Yeah. And then nearly lastly, I think it's important that all participants at a given location in a given experiment be accounted for. And I don't know exactly how we could do this. There's lots of ways, but document by some means that participants in an investigation could not have purposely or inadvertently created what is uh, later interpreted as evidence of an inexplicable event. And then maybe a historical data piece documented from primary sources whenever possible. And I know the historical data piece doesn't sound like uh, hard data, and that's essentially because it isn't. Everything else that was mentioned so far is like uh, is like quantitative and scientific in its uh, in its approach and the historical part would it would admittedly be very qualitative but if you are employing both kinds of research instead of one kind uh, they can essentially complement each other yeah so, uh, so so all that again Spiricom is looked at really through the prism of these best evidence standards to give folks uh, some background and especially through these through the perspective of these corroborative measures for EVP and ITC. Okay. So, so I apologize for that very long introduction, but if I'm not thorough, I really I fear that that folks may not completely understand the point of the of the approach because it is a lot more titillating. You can understand to just say uh, that that something is so, and that it's a really cool paranormal event. And um, you know, I, I totally I, I totally understand where that mindset's coming from. I just also completely disagree with it. <laughs> there you go. I like your honesty. Okay, so let's get back to the Spiritcom story, though. I mean, you have you've you've dug up a lot of information about it that suggests that what we uh, have been led to believe about Spiritcom is not the true story. So you've explained the prism, as you say, by which you looked at it. So let's sort of talk about the information you've uncovered. Yes. Well, so first, it's probably important to understand that you need to look at all the all the people connected to the Spiritcom story. Yeah. Because uh, after all, with claims like this, you know, maybe we ought to know who George Meek is. And we ought to, you know, he's the founder of the Metascience Foundation who was uh, William O'Neill's benefactor. And we ought to know who William O'Neill is. Absolutely. That he was a self-proclaimed psychic medium and healer who was the operator of the Spiritcom device. You know, we ought to know who these folks are. So in pulling at all those threads of the important players in the Spiritcom story, one of the first threads pulled upon turns out to be 
what is much uh, much later a very important part of this story. So to, we're going to bring it full circle by the end of the interview. I'll introduce this now for context. George Meek, as you've heard, was the founder of the MetaScience Foundation, whose um, mission was to develop exactly a Spearcom-type device, which they purported to do by way of William O'Neill and presented audio evidence of their uh, reportedly real-time two-way communications with a dead NASA scientist named Dr. George Mueller. Well, <clears throat> so I look into George Meek, um, and Jim Hale and I find what we thought in, initially to be an unimportant connection, but it turned out that this connection is the one that holds future implications for a psychological operations model to explain the Spiricom high strangeness. Um, I introduce it now for context later because the psychological operations model to explain how all these players came to be connected and uh, what the purpose for perpetuating such a bizarre story might have been, yeah. the PSYOPs model really does fit best for an overall motivation. Uh, so I established now the meek Puharich connection. Now, folks may have never heard of Puharich, or maybe they remember him from his um, his connection to Yuri Geller. Andrea Puharich was a, um, a reportedly reported to be a CIA agent who had affiliations with the unicorn killer Ira Einhorn, whose first policy paper was to the Defense Department related to extrasensory perception. I paint all this to say that this cat was way out there yeah. uh, with clearly some intelligence ties. He's got a home in Ossing, New York uh, in the late 70s that later comes to be burned down. He claims by the CIA themselves. He's on the run for years. Uh, but that, that home was nicknamed the Turkey Farm because he actually had a, a program there experimenting upon children. Um, this is not to say that these were nefarious Nazi-type experiments, but they were bizarre. They were an attempt to find star children among us, or develop them, or so he claimed. Yikes. And, yeah, and these were experiments uh, involving mental measurements. Those are psychological tests for folks who don't know. Mm -hmm. um, involved hypnosis, involved what is essentially remote viewing. Uh, all this was going on, and... Uh, 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 Clearly, this kind of relates the bizarre nature of one Andrej Puharch. So this guy being connected to Meek at any level is clearly important to me. So um, I established the Meek-Puharch connection by way of George Meek's own book called Healers and the Healing Process. Uh, it features an essay by Puharch. Meek is described as a, a confidant of Puharich on page 56, Meat states in his book, After We Die, What Then? Puharich later confided in me, George, we will probably never find out, but there exists the sneaking suspicion in my mind that, and I add this, Brazilian healer Arrigo may have been the other 8%, referring to 8% of cases which um, may be completely anomalous and misunderstood. Mm -hmm. So, this is an instance where George Meek, connected through two of his own works, is conceding, one, a professional relationship by featuring an essay of Puharich, and two, describing 
Meek himself as a confidant of Pihorich's. So who's this Arrigo guy, just so you know for context? Uh, Arrigo was a self-described healer in Brazil. He was known as the, uh, the rusty knife surgeon. Okay. You can imagine this, uh, this individual pulling off, you know, the usual hoax of the, of the chicken guts in the palm and pretending to extract some cancer through the surface of the skin and magically heal you. Mm-hmm. This Brazilian healer, Arrigo, was basically a part of, at least the research into uh, this healer, was part of Puharge's work with the Essentia Research Associates project that was actually sponsored by NASA. Puharge and a wealthy businessman and former U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer, uh, Henry Belk, were called to Brazil, and they took a look at uh, the Arrigo case. By the way, they were joined by John Lawrence, an engineer working for RCA on NASA satellite projects. So now we've got not just not just Meek and Puharich, we've got this larger intelligence community connection by way of Puharich, and maybe even a NASA connection, which will become important later. Yeah. So I provide all that context to show that just a cursory look at the Spiricom story becomes infinitely more uh, interesting than this really boorish tale of a, of a William O'Neill at a device till three in the morning speaking with you know dead people on a radio. Yeah. Uh, so we get into the Puharich connection further. Who was Puharich? It turns out that like the Puharich Meek connection, there was a Puharich John Fuller connection. Now, folks may know who John Fuller is because he popularized the story of the Benny and Barney Hill abductions. Yes. So this guy is in a cottage industry of popularizing paranormal-type fringe stories. (laughs) Uh, And I provide this here again for context later. We're not going to labor this point, but I want folks to notice that Puharich, an affiliate of George Meeks, also had a documented association with John Fuller, who not only popularized the Betty and Barney Hill story, but also wrote the definitive work on Spiritcom called The Ghost of 29 Megacycles. So the plot thickens, you see. Yes. Yes, okay. Um, Now, let's get into what was The Ghost of 29 Megacycles, since it is the most referred to work related to Spiritcom, besides the meta-science research itself. Mm -hmm. This is the Miller ghost. Yes, the Mueller the Mueller ghost uh, conversations on tape through a device called Spiritcom. That many people have probably heard before. This oh, time, I, I think folks have probably heard this. If they're listening to this show and if they, if they enjoy uh, considering esoterica, they certainly would have heard of this story, I think. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so the book, The Ghost of 29 Megacycles, it's, it's central to any discussion of Spiritcom. So I suggest folks do read it, but they ought to read it with a jaundiced eye because John J. Fuller, again, popularized the Betty and Barney Hill story. This is not to make a judgment upon uh, the Betty and Barney Hill story at this moment, but it is to say that it's interesting that this folk, this guy did the same, John Fuller did the same for the Spiritcom story. It's essentially his, it's his model of story dissemination. He popularizes it in a certain way, frames it in a certain way. He tends to select evidence in a certain way to further a claim set out in the book that would, quite cynically, I suggest, help him sell books. Now, the book itself, The the Ghost of 29 Megacycles, boasts a subtext right on the cover of the book that says, quote, 
the most amazing breakthrough ever in life-after-death research. <laughs> there is no question mark there. Yeah. So I suggest, you know, hey, we'll see about that claim. Uh, but I do want folks to read that book perhaps with a jaundiced eye because he isn't suggesting that this is uh, at the outset something that's really questionable. He claims to, but along the way, again, I, I believe he uh, selected evidence to uh, further the story he framed in the outset. So now we get into Fuller's investigation, uh, which essentially Jim Hale and I followed the model of his investigation because he did what any good investigator would do. He asked, who are the players in the Spearcom story? Yeah. So we start with William O'Neill because Fuller's got a lot of great information on William O'Neill. William O'Neill is now dead, and so we have to refer to a rather secondary source, but Fuller did interview O'Neill and did document rather well his, uh, uh, his background. So we look into who was this William O'Neill. William O'Neill, um, one – had certain challenges, let's say, um, to his mental health status. Bill O'Neill, again, was the developer and operator of Spiricom. I have documents that establish O'Neill as a mentally disturbed individual with a ventriloquist's skill set. Okay, yeah. And this is important because if Spiricom was to be a hoax by the hands or should we say by the mouth, of William O'Neill, if he were a manic, depressive, schizophrenic ventriloquist, well, you might want to reconsider the evidence. Yeah. And so if we look at the Spiricom evidence itself, the audio evidence itself, um, it's interesting to note that the supposed Mueller voice, the dead scientist, mm -hmm. and the William O'Neill voice, the operator of the Spiricom, never actually speak at the same time. Now, when you have conversations with someone throughout the course of a day or even on the telephone, you'll find yourself stepping on each other's words uh, completely accidentally probably 10 to 20 times in a five-minute uh, uh, conversation. Yeah. Um, and that's because of the nature of conversations. However, this is hours and hours of claimed communication with a deceased scientist, and never do the two voices actually speak at the same time. This immediately brings suspicion to the data set. I mean, I don't, I, I probably don't need to connect the dots to the point of, of saying what I'm saying between the lines, but uh, I will anyway. This O'Neill figure is a conflicted character whose motivations were uh, obviously questionable. He, he's a guy, we have to think about this now. George Meek is his benefactor. William O'Neill is, um, according to John Fuller, living in a shanty of a home with a hole in the roof. And each time he sends Spiricom evidence, the checks get bigger. Ah, here we go, yeah. Yeah, you see, so even if there wasn't an open agreement to perpetuate a hoax or elicit a fraud from William O'Neill, it's kind of like an unspoken, yeah, I don't know how you describe it, except to say that we have a financially motivated, also, also, O'Neill is motivated, motivated at the level of uh, his belief system to confirm this kind of evidence, and he's a man who is of two minds, being a schizophrenic, so we don't know at what level he was even perpetuating this hoax, one that was one that was he maybe convincing himself of the evidence too. And of course we have George Meek, who wouldn't really look at all this critically if it tended to agree with his 
belief system and his worldview of the paranormal and and how exciting all this was. Yeah. So now I now just to walk the audience through it very quickly in an actual in memory of William O'Neill obit written by George Meek himself and then further commented upon by the editor of the magazine called Unlimited Horizons. It states that William O'Neill was confined to the Torrance State Hospital in Deary, Pennsylvania at the time of his death. His diagnosed condition was that of schizophrenia. We have further confirmation of this uh, schizophrenia by way of George Meek's books himself. So it isn't just in a newsletter from 1991. Mm-hmm. It was also in, uh, in some of George Meek's own works. How do we establish Bill O'Neill as a ventriloquist? Well, uh, the first hint of this was in Fuller's book. Fuller makes a passing mention of O'Neill conducting a children's program at WKRC-TV in Cincinnati. Uh, and so a further look at that led us to George Meek's books in which he discussed <clears throat> with O'Neill. We have a, re- a recounting of a conversation with O'Neill where O'Neill says, you know, George, how I liked ventriloquism. And then in, in a quite uh, bizarre turn of events, it's rather serendipitous, when contacting the modern day, the contemporary president of the Metascience Foundation, who's clearly no longer George Meek, George Meek is dead, Thomas Pratt provided uh, a videotape of some of the recorded sessions of O'Neill actually operating the Spearcom device. Now, there isn't much to be found in these actual sessions. I mean, there's O'Neill, his back is to the camera with his face toward the device, uh, so we don't see what his hands and mouth are doing, but we know that there's there's a Spiritcom event occurring in the room. Uh, however, at the very beginning of the video reel, uh, there's a single blurred frame, which I believe you've seen, Tim. Yeah. And it shows that this is from the unerased portion at the leader of the videotape. It's an unerased portion of a videotape O'Neill must have reused to send George Meek video evidence of his performing these sessions. And it shows a younger O'Neill in a costume as a ventriloquist with a little puppet in his lap and a, and a cowboy hat tilted sideways. Uh, so his own claims that he's a ventriloquist is furthered by an actual picture of it. And he's now clearly established as a, uh, uh, an individual dying in a sanitarium. He's a schizophrenic with a ventriloquist's um, skill set. Yeah. Um, in a related piece of research, it should be noted that in a uh, in a case study of over 100 schizophrenics called Hallucinations as the World of Spirits, a doctor noted uh, many patterns emerging from schizophrenics who claim to be hearing the voices of people. And just as an aside, it's quite interesting that the doctors found that Fred uh, and the doc or doctor were names that schizophrenics often use to describe or nickname these um, invisible entities they believe they were communicating with. And that's interesting because the first two people before Doc Mueller, obviously Doc Mueller is Doc, there was a, uh, there was a Doc Nick that um, O'Neill claimed to be in communication with by way of Spiritcom, and that's outside of this data set for the moment. And he also claimed to be in communication with a with a Fred Ingstrom. Huh. So this is interesting that O'Neill, not only dying uh, in a mental hospital 
confined there as a schizophrenic also shares these these uh, uh, these qualities of schizophrenics by naming who he's in contact with as Fred Ingstrom, Doc Nick, and later Doc Mueller, who is in he's uh, he's the individual in the Spiricom recordings that most folks have heard as popularized, let's say, on um, uh, the Coast to Coast AM program years ago. Yeah. Okay, so the next obvious thing, then, if we really do have these questions about William O'Neill, uh, the next thing is obviously to make an attempt at replicating the Spiricom results, right? I mean, after all, if they can be falsified, maybe they were. So I propose that in all scientific endeavors, uh, it's important to determine the validity of a given data set. Falsifiability is basically, it's refutability, to put it into plainer language. It's the logical possibility that an assertion can be shown false by an observation or an experiment. Yeah. Uh, and this would determine, really, it serves to determine if the results under consideration are trustworthy. And since we want to take an approach of uh, if not scientific process, maybe at least an approach of jurisprudence where, like we've been doing tonight, I present exhibits as links in a, in a chain of evidence and then letting everyone decide on their own. I think it's, it's, only, it's only fitting that we make this attempt at falsifiability. Well, someone else had done that work before Jim Hale and I. They met the falsifiability standard. Dr. David Rivers uh, by way of a Fate magazine article, this is how he became involved in the Spiricom investigation. His investigation was pretty short in duration. I think uh, Rivers, all told, took maybe a week of odd time to uh, consider the Spiricom evidence. The Dr. David Rivers audio uh, that will be presented in this interview is related to the January 1987 Fate magazine article called Spiricom or Spiricon. That audio speaks for itself. So rather than belabor what it is, you'll hear Dr. David Rivers uh, use an audio Servox electrolarynx. You know, this is the device like a, uh, like a little talk box for people who've lost their larynx. Yeah. So he uses this device because as a speech pathologist and, and, uh, and a linguist, he immediately recognized the sound on the Spiricom tapes of this dead reportedly dead Dr. Mueller, it just sounded a lot like an electrolarynx to him. Uh, so he went ahead and replicated that. Folks will hear it for themselves. They can decide if it's if it isn't so completely similar as to draw a conclusion from already. Let's uh, let's play that now, and, and folks can hear what we're talking about, the Dr. Rivers' replication of the Spiricom results. I am going to read a brief passage for you with the electro. Uh, larynx held in front of my lip. Instead of leaving it at that, because again, if we're taking this kind of jurisprudence approach of backing up with chains, with exhibits in a chain of evidence, Jim Hale and I decided to contact a producer who might have had some devices similar to the late 70s, early 80s era. And so a producer, Tim Loud, was um, assigned to reproduce these, and he did. He turned around our request in about uh, a day. 
we gave him a few clips of the Spiritcom audio and asked him, using technology available at the time, could you falsify this? Could you make something that sounds a lot like this? And Tim Loud uh, responded within a day. And aside from the superior, you know, the high fidelity of the recording without the associated noise of Spiritcom, well, Tim Lau's results were quite impressive. I would say as impressive as the David Rivers audio. So in other words, this Tim Loud audio you're about to play is a contemporary finding that confirms what Dr. Rivers found. So now we have two means by which the Spearcom audio could have been faked. Okay, let's play it now. like a Frampton device or like a talk box popularized in a lot of uh, music of the day, okay, okay. at the time. Uh, so those audio uh, uh, clips are central to our research because if it can be faked, one has to consider that it was. I'm not saying that it necessarily was. Uh, I guess people make their own minds up. Uh, but in my mind, it's very interesting to consider two things. One, Dr. Rivers found that it sounded like an electrolarynx device. And two, in the Spiritcom manual itself, on page 30, now mind you, this is the rough draft of the Spiritcom manual um, obtained from the current Metascience Foundation president. On page 30 of this original manual, it states, and I quote, when we were in our Florida laboratory, 1978, we experimented with an artificial larynx with resulting sounds basically similar to Doc Nick's speech, end quote. Yeah. So now what we have is David Rivers saying, hey, it sounds like an electrolarynx, and the original Spiritcom manual, including the statement that they possessed an electrolarynx. Furthermore, it's been confirmed by the Metascience Foundation president, Thomas Pratt, that this electrolarynx device is part of the manifest and is actually in his possession with the old Spiritcom equipment. Uh, this means that when uh, that equipment was collected from William O'Neill, that William O'Neill possessed the electrolarynx. Some would say case closed. Yeah, sounds like he's got the... Uh you know, he's in the pantry with the uh, with the butter knife or however that, yeah, that exactly. blue expression goes. It's a classic, you know, to use jurisprudence terms again, it's a classic, uh, you know, means, motive, opportunity, right? Yeah. So this is what we have. So now the question has to be begged, who was this man, George Meek, to accept this evidence on the face of it, actually approach John Fuller? I know earlier it sounded like I was highly critical of John Fuller, but it must be stated that John Fuller claims he was approached by Meek himself. So maybe this isn't an instance of Fuller uh, rooting out these stories to further his uh, his publishing career. So now I ask George Meek, obviously a flawed man, but, but how flawed? Well, was there a monetary motive? Interesting. McDonald, 
as in the McDonnell Douglas Donald, was funding a lot of research in those days. McDonald money was responsible for a lot of the remote viewing seed money in the form of this uh, paranormal grant money. McDonald as benefactor essentially funded the Metascience Foundation. George Meek claims to have spent $500,000 to travel the world. Uh, we don't know how much of this was his money, McDonald's, for research. It is interesting to consider the, the potential implications of commingling of funds. The Spiricom was for sale at one point for $10,000 a piece, according to Alexander McRae, who documented that fact in his book called EVP and New Dimensions. And George Meek himself, this is again under the monetary motive heading, George Meek himself wrote in a memo for, for MetaScience Insiders that there was an operating budget of $250,000 per year for MetaScience. Wow. Yeah. So obviously there's much more to this story. It sounds like a classic, like a shell kind of uh, foundation for furthering another agenda. I know this sounds very conspiratorial, but, but it is in fact a classic model of intel agency involvement. That fellow at Radio Shack said I was mad. Well, who's mad now? <laughs> You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I'm just sick of all the amateur stuff, you know? I mean, like, if I'm paying top dollar, I want a little production value, you know? Like some editing, transition, something, some music. Oh, Magoo, you done it again. And I just want to jump in because I have a couple questions here. Now, you say the Spiritcom was for sale. Did anyone buy it? And then to jump, to piggyback on that question... Now, you talked about replicating uh, or falsifying evidence, you know, making false versions of the evidence. Has anyone actually made their own spirit calm and, you know, tried to replicate the evidence in a positive way? Okay, I'll take your first question first. Um, I don't know of anyone, nor can I document anyone purchasing the device. Okay. The fact it was for sale, I think, uh, under the jurisprudence model, kind of shows um, evidence of monetary motive. But my not being able to produce some receipt of that or something doesn't really belie the fact that McRae uh, documented this. And McRae, by the way, was an academic who had NASA contracts, and he was not a real fringe, kooky kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if this is based on credibility, I would I'd rather trust McRae than Meek's claims. So that's first. But other folks did experiment with the Spiritcom device itself while not purchasing it. The likes of Sarah Estep at one point possessed an actual Spiritcom device. She experimented with it and claimed she really didn't have any results. Uh, This is, of course, because, uh, quite fittingly, under the esoteric tradition, William O'Neill came to believe, and so did George Meek, and eventually everyone who tried to replicate the Spiritcom device uh, (laughs) results, that O'Neill's psychic abilities must have made him so special as to be the only one who this device worked with. Oh, man. Yeah. So other Spearcom devices, to answer your question, the claims of building them are really various and sundry, and I don't know what academic rigor has gone into replicating it, but I will say there's a great deal of difficulty in replicating the actual Spearcom device on two counts. One, no one knows what it actually looked like, and no one has the actual schematics. Let me be clear. 
there's there's something out there shown as a block diagram. I am not an electronics technician, but Jim Hale is. And he says, uh, Stephen, there's a big difference between a block diagram and schematics. Schematics show a layer of transparency, you know, down to the diode and transistor. Mm -hmm. uh, a block diagram simply gives a conceptual overview of a device, and that's all that's ever been presented. Now, on the account of what the heck did it look like, we have conflicting reports. Because the Spearcom device itself in the pictures popularized, in the videotape I possess of O'Neill operating the device, the Spearcom device itself looks massive. It's got these oscillators and these this endless array of equipment. But the device delivered to Sarah Estep, she claimed fit on a shelf. So I honestly don't know what people are replicating, if they are replicating the results. Maybe they're using the same kind of uh, – they're using their intuitive faculties to guide them, and, uh, but that's not really replicating the device. So I guess my answer would be no, no one's replicated device because no one can. I guess my answer would be no, no one has replicated the Spiritcom results because no one can. All right. Now, uh, what else should we cover here with the issues you found with the Spiritcom story? We, I mean, we still haven't got into the Bill Miller aspect, so let's, let's talk oh, about yes, that. Oh, yes, the, the Dr. George J. Mueller. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I know – Former I, Red Sox third baseman <clears throat> Bill Miller, who – Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I know you're a big baseball fan. You did that whole series. That was cool. Yeah, so I always have uh, the same spelling of the name. So ah, yeah, it is a common spelling. And, in fact, this common spelling error leads into some interesting uh, research. So the next step we took, uh, Tim, was to establish the existence of the real George Mueller. Jim Hale dug into the census records and found a birth record for the original George Mueller. I followed up with the Cornell University archives and found the actual picture that was included in the Spearcom manual. So uh, I came to understand that this George Mueller was a real scientist who did work at Orange Coast Community College in his, in his last days in California and, uh, in fact, did attend Cornell and wrote, uh, wrote professional peer-reviewed papers, okay? Um, and I state all that because there was some confusion initially. Um, I mean, looking at the death certificate now of, of Dr. George J. Mueller, there still is a little confusion, and we'll get into that if there's time. But there was some confusion initially because you heard me say over and over again, as George Meek did and as his contemporaries like Mark Macy continue to popularize, you heard me say that Dr. George J. Mueller, who was communicated, via, communicated with via Spiritcom, you heard me say that he was a NASA scientist. This is their report, NASA scientist. Well, therein lies the confusion because there is, in fact, a NASA scientist named George Mueller. He's considered the father of the space program, especially, well, particularly for the space shuttle. This is not to say father of the rocketry program. I'm talking organizationally. He's considered the father of the of the uh, some of the uh, Apollo missions. Mm -hmm. And uh, this legitimate NASA scientist actually has some interesting overlaps in his resume, where uh, both he, the real NASA scientist George Mueller, actually worked at some of the same outfits as the reportedly dead Spiricom Mueller, you see? And so they have these interesting overlaps. And so what I'm wondering is, at this point in the story, what I'm wondering is, if Metascience, William O'Neill, George Meek, are all popularizing the fact that this is a NASA scientist, because after all, the voice on the other end of the Spiricom device was telling them, 
all about himself. He said uh, he worked at Cornell. He worked at Orange Coast uh, College in his last days. He worked for NASA. He's giving them all these facts. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, George Meek himself claims that this all checked out. Uh, again, I mean, quickly revisiting the the George Meek uh, uh, investigation. George Meek claims that there were no intelligence ties, and then and then recounts to Alexander McRae uh, that there were intelligence ties. So he's a very conflicted character. But what Meek said was that they confirmed every aspect of Dr. Mueller's existence. So I'm assuming they checked out the NASA thing. And therein lies the confusion, because there are two, Na two Mueller's, not one. One worked for NASA and one didn't. And the one that didn't was the Spiritcom Mueller. So I'm wondering why this voice on the other end of the radio at some higher incarnation wouldn't know he didn't work for NASA. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so. therein lies the question, you see. So in the existence of the real George Mueller, um, I had to undo one of my own models. Jim Hale and I arrived at a model of one too many Georges too many. And I thought for a while that the NASA Mueller and the Spiritcom Mueller were one and the same Mueller. Mm -hmm. uh, as it turns out, my own research has undone my own model because that's what people do when they have a scientific mind. They update their models based upon new evidence. So to be really clear, this is a very important point because uh, Rochelle Hawks, uh, is, that, is that her name? Yes. Okay, Rochelle Hawks wrote an article recapitulating some of the research regarding uh, this spirit conspiracy of the single Mueller fact, and it is not it is not a fact. But I do want to point out that the confusion, this year-long investigation of how many Mueller's were there, and was it one and the same, was a direct result of the misinformation of the Spiritcom story itself by way of the MetaScience Foundation. So in classic conspiratorial manner, disinformation is embedded in the story to take researchers down rabbit holes. Anyone who's looked into the JFK assassination or any other conspiracy finds this to be the case. Absolutely. And, and I was, in fact, I will admit it, I was disinformed. I went down a rabbit hole and I made incorrect assumptions. However, I will defend myself and say that those assumptions were based on the evidence at hand. So, to update the model, the real George Mueller has been established. The space program Mueller may have had nothing to do with this, but later you'll see he may have had something to do with this. Um, and we turn now to who is currently popularizing and perpetuating this disinformation, this myth. And it turns out that the uh, the person who claims leadership and, and ownership and even co-presidency of the MetaScience Foundation is one Mark Macy. Okay. Now, since we're using kind of jurisprudence terminology, uh, I don't want anyone to mistake this as an actual court case. I'm not a lawyer, and this is not an actual court case. However, I did propose an indictment of Mark Macy. Now, an indictment is technically a formal written statement charging a person with an offense. This indictment, while less formal than a legal proceeding, meets the same evidential standards. And here's a few things we're going to establish uh, in this discussion of an indictment of Mark Macy, who continues to perpetuate uh, mythologies and a false claim of leadership to the meta-science title. I plan on establishing that Mark Macy corroborated with uh, Dr. Patricia Cubis on the book Conversations Beyond the Light.
What's interesting about Dr. Patricia Cubis, and you're going to find this wild, is that the person who co-authored the book with Mark Macy also taught contemporaneously with the Spiritcom Mueller when he was among the living at Orange Coast College. Oh, wow. Also, and this is point number two in the indictment, that book misrepresents the collaboration with Relationship 2 and even the title of George Meek. Furthermore, this is the third point, Mark Macy is responsible for the continuation of the NASA Mueller myth which again has been described as the falsehood that the Spiritcom Mueller was a NASA scientist, and I propose he's been doing this for profit. The fourth point in the indictment is that Macy illegitimately claims rights to the MetaScience Foundation and documentation of the true president, I've mentioned already, his name is Thomas Pratt, documentation of the true president of MetaScience is provided, and this, by the way, this, this evidence, he's got business records, he's got internal memorandum, he's got uh, letters from Meek himself appointing him, the president of MetaScience. All of this documentation is in stark contrast to Mark Macy himself refusing to produce a shred of evidence that he has any legitimate claim to MetaScience, the Spiritcom tape, or even an intimate knowledge of the Spiritcom findings. And this, by the way, has been promised by Mark Macy, and then Macy recanted upon his promise. Fifth, Mark Macy is a gatekeeper of information of the worst kind. He hides behind a disarming uh, disposition, but it's actually cover for what is clearly a passive-aggressive, what he calls philosophy of collaboration, which is posted on his website. Folks can check it out. They don't have to believe what I'm saying. He posts a philosophy of collaboration that has admonitions for, quote, unity, and the need for, quote, residence. Now, my resonance, mind you, that unity and resonance, according to this philosophy of collaboration in Mark Macy, is achieved when there's an absence of resistance to the ideas of Mark Macy. And a lack of resonance has resulted in the squelching of free speech by Mark Macy. He has threatened uh, immediate action in response to evidence that is contrary to his, quote, unity and resonance. Finally, this is point number six, um, I established that Mark Macy uses the, uh, the lexicon, the vocabulary, the nomenclature, the trappings of science to deceive consumers of his materials. I contend that this could be considered fraud and the inducement, and that he possesses a belief system that typifies a peculiar type of mental derangement, namely a meticulously created fantasy world that he probably formulated as a coping mechanism for dealing with his impending death when he wrote many times that he was diagnosed with cancer. And I believe that th being faced with your own death can in fact fuel this type of belief system. And that belief system can be driven by an engine of magical thinking and the monetary support of fantasy-prone consumers of the paranormal. So the first exhibit in this uh, informal indictment um, is, in fact, that Mark Macy perpetuates the disinformation that the Spiritcom Mueller worked for NASA. He knows better. I have an email that says he knows better, but still does not correct the record. So I ask if he knows better and still tells the lie, why? Yeah. Point number two, the indictment of Mark Macy, the Mueller-NASA confusion. This is technically not point number two. It actually piggybacks on, 
on the NASA Mueller myth. Um, the first point can be collab uh, corroborated by his own book with Patricia Cubis' Conversations Beyond the Light and uh, the research performed by Jim Hale and I to go to the primary source records of Orange Coast College. And you've seen these documents, Tim. In the Orange Coast College faculty log, it shows Cubis and the dead Spiritcom Mueller right there on the same open book listing. Yeah. Now, they were not in the same departments, but this was a very small college at the time, and in fact, it's still not, it's still not too large. Very small college at the time, and it's hard to believe these two folks would not have known of each other. Although, to be clear, Patricia Cubis does claim she never knew Mueller in the living. Okay. Uh, so now, to the Macy, you know, NASA Mueller myth confusion, the notion of a, of a uh, a NASA Mueller involved in Spiritcom it may have been started by Bill O'Neill, uh, but was later picked up by George Meek, uh, believing every fact told by this discarnate entity, and it was later popularized by Mark Macy. It, it led to this sub-investigation pursuing the model that the NASA Mueller and the Spiritcom Mueller were one and the same. I, I explained how I was taken down that rabbit hole, disinformed, and it is interesting that this, that this disinformation serves a purpose. The whole NASA Mueller fiction could be interpreted in, I propose, uh, one of a few ways. One, as an intentional act of disinformation. Uh, two, maybe even more interestingly, as an attempt at character assassination of the actual NASA Mueller by way of guilt of association, uh, you see, with this crazy Spiritcom yeah. story. Or three, it could be interpreted as obfuscation of the facts that effectively serves to have legitimate research into Spiritcom trapped in a little uh, eddy or, or tide pool. And this is precisely what happened with me. Now, also, the NASA Mueller confusion became resolved. I've updated folks about that. I sure hope this interview further serves that purpose. I want folks to know that I've updated the model and I don't hold on to uh, old research just because I did it. Now, I'm not married to any of these concepts but what is borne out by the facts. Next, uh, Thomas Pratt, who is the legitimate president of Metascience, he provides an audio clip by way of a telephone interview he agreed to have recorded. And in this telephone interview, he gives some background on Mark Macy. I'm going to let Thomas Pratt speak for himself about the character of Mark Macy, because um, these are his allegations, not mine. But he claims to have documentation of these, um, of these claims of Mark Macy absconding with the mailing list of Metascience, uh, stealing the written works of George Meek, and in fact, it's been documented that Macy claims George Meek was the original president of Macy's Continuing Life Research Organization, and George Meek was never the president of any such organization. So again, he's just borrowing credibility to the story by way of these lies. Yeah. Uh, so now let's have the Thomas Pratt audio. You are able to produce heretofore completely unseen Spiritcom uh, session tapes, okay? This is proof positive that you are, in fact, in possession of 
the MetaScience Foundation materials. And as you've told me before, you were um, essentially kind of bequeathed the presidency by way of uh, the creator, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Meek himself. Okay, so all of this is perfectly clear to anyone who's spoken to you on the phone and received this mailing. Um, it's perfectly clear to me. However, if you ask your average um, person who doesn't doesn't go the extra step and contact you and try to track down the true president of MetaScience Foundation, Inc., um, most people would think by his own claims that Mark Macy is the president of MetaScience Foundation, Inc. He's said as much on several interviews. Uh, you can find these MP3s all over the net. He does these, you know, paranormal type podcast shows. Do you have any affiliation with Mark Macy? And it, so far as you know, is he a pre maybe there's two presidents of MetaScience? Is it possible there's a co-presidency or something? Or, or, or is he making claims to something that really may not be his mantle? Well, you know, um, I'm going to I'm I'm going to try to be very uh, clear because I do believe in the the saying: if you can't say anything good about someone, don't say anything at all. Um, one of the, uh, Mark Macy, uh, George Meek became interested in Mark Macy um, after the foundation was turned over to my care. Uh, Mark Macy came along after me. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I had already been elected president and already taken control of, of the organization. Um, but George Meek had this um, plan where he was going to, uh, he was working with a medium, uh, and he was going to publish this massive work, which was purportedly communication with his deceased wife. Jeanette and uh, and and Jeanette and Mark Macy was going to uh, rewrite this uh, and edit and help him to market it. Well, um, so Mark Macy brought his laptop computer, went to Franklin, North Carolina, and uh, downloaded it, connected it up, and downloaded everything off the computer in uh, the office there, including the mailing list for MetaScience Foundation, uh, whereupon he has used that mailing list to solicit funds and contact those people. And, uh, you know, that's, it, it's one of those situations that is, um, you know, it's just very uncomfortable when people do stuff like that. Uh, it's certainly, yeah, that's, um, that's one word for it. No. So you're here in, in stark contrast to Macy making claims to the rights <laughs> to the MetaScience Foundation and the Spearcom tapes. Thomas Pratt delivered and even has uh, an interesting comment about Mark Macy. So like I said, fraud in the inducement, question mark, I, I'd say that and then some. Mark Macy, by the way, this is an interesting part of the, of the indictment. Uh, in early 2005, his massive World ITC website was actually more massive. It had a discussion forum. Um, it also had uh, uh, a kind of 
edited version of the Spiritcom manual. It's interesting that in many websites, this is not uh, this is not peculiar to Mark Macy, but in many websites, folks tend to leave out that little bit earlier mentioned about possessing an electrolarynx. It is curious how that fact is deleted often from the official quote-unquote record. Yeah. But Mark Macy, his world, his world ITC website had a discussion forum. And when someone on the forum questioned some of Mark's evidence, I put that in quotes, of an ITC image of Dr. Mueller, yes, that same Spiritcom Mueller with the, with the Cornell faculty photo pictured in the Spiritcom manual, mm-hmm. when this person questioned the spirit, this evidence of an ITC image of Dr. Mueller, in 2005, Macy closed all forum and guestbook comment sections of the site. And so I guess a free market of ideas and opinions isn't really a part of what Macy considers to be unity and residence. If you read his uh, rationale, you you won't believe your eyes. I'm going to let folks look into that themselves, but they ought to read the rationale under his philosophy of collaboration, which is still posted. I sent you a few attachments, and we're going to bear those out for the folks. The first piece of evidence sent was the Mueller ITC image that caused the controversy in the first place. Um, quite interestingly, a year later, I performed a comparative analysis on the same Mueller ITC image, but it was a um, a more primary source color version, which had a blue tint to it, as if it was a snapshot of an actual TV screen. Um, And I compared that to the Cornell Archive image of Mueller. This is the same kind of analysis that led Macy to to shut down the forum, the discussion forum, on his own website. Um, And curiously, a year later, uh, my not even being aware of this former analysis, a very informal analysis from my understanding, I performed the same type of analysis. I compare the Mueller ITC image to the Cornell Archive image of Mueller. These images and all the evidence we're discussing tonight can be found at spiritcomstudy.com and it's mirrored over at gobeyondnow.com so folks can kind of see the evidential links I'm discussing for themselves. Yeah. So, the cursory analysis while differing in specific findings from the original 2005 poster on the forum, which was not me. Someone's already asked that. Hey Rourke, was that you back then mixing it up? I had no knowledge of this uh, this forum in 2005. Um, it's interesting that my findings prove conclusively that the Mueller ITC image is a fake. Uh, the image was part of what was called the Rourke Hale Spirit Conspiracy presentation, uh, later pulled from a, uh, a podcast, a paranormal podcast website. And interestingly, after Mark Macy learned of this same analyses, only it was uh, a, a stronger analyses that people could just see side by side, that it was clearly a fake reproduction of the Cornell photo, slightly turned, skewed, and presented in the negative. In other words, had the same shadow shaping uh, uh, of, of the uh, physiognomy, the facial features of the Cornell photo. So. It's a very low-tech hoax, proven to be a fake, and Macy became so upset by this that he decided to threaten the podcasters to pull the research off their site and 
If they didn't, he would deprive the podcasting site of the rights to provide the Spearcom audio free to the public. Thing is, Macy isn't the head of MetaScience, has no rights to the Spearcom audio. <laughs> and even if he were the head of MetaScience, the Spearcom findings, audio included, were made, and I quote, made freely available, end quote, by George Meek in 1982. There is no copyright. Meek specifically states this. There is no trademark. Meek specifically states this. There is no limitation on use of the Spearcom audio and related materials, with one exception, and Meek wrote, except for profit. It seems that the only person using the Spearcom audio for profit is Mark Macy himself, and yet he's claiming to deprive the audio findings to others based upon his ownership of them. The only limitation on use ever specified was a limitation on use of Spearcom materials for profit. So the question is, how much does Mark Macy get paid per lecture? How many books has he written capitalizing upon the Spearcom materials? Exactly. So, so now I discuss part of the indictment, which is basically a recapitulation of the show that started, or should we say ended it all as far as presenting this research to the paranormal community in 2006 and 2007. Um, December 9th, 2007, Mark Macy and one of his associates, <clears throat> who performs Spearcom-like research even to this day, by the way, um, Marcus Leader, appeared on a podcast show um, and uh, were basically going head-to-head -head with Team Rourke Hale. And we're going to present our findings, hopefully share a little bit, maybe uh, learn a little bit uh, from each other. If folks had ever heard of this, it's been discussed on forums. Um, they heard Macy promise the release of MetaScience files. This never happened. They can hear Macy's thoughts on uh, his beliefs of the paranormal, which include these uh, these kind of esoteric ideas surrounding Marduk. And uh, they'll, they'll particularly hear his attempt to hijack science for his own purposes. Now, more interestingly is that following this time together on a podcast with Mark Macy, he claims to have learned of the analysis that we just spoke of earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and he then threatened the podcasters to pull uh, the Spearcom audio. And again, he has no right to do that. He's not the head of MetaScience, and the Spearcom audio is not copyright or trademark. Uh, so let's look more specifically at these, this philosophy of collaboration. That, too, is posted on SpearcomStudy.com. They can find it on uh, Macy's own website. And I suggest his philosophy of collaboration is just a bit incongruous with Macy's chilling of freedom of speech. Because if he's threatening paranormal podcasters because they post things that, uh, you know, he doesn't agree with, that's hardly in the tradition of any philosophy of collaboration I'm familiar with. Yeah. By the way, the podcasters um, folded like a, like a cheap camera to Macy's threats. 
Um, they describe themselves, by the way, as 100% honest, free, and independent paranormal talk radio. I, I suge- <laughs> I'd suggest they pick sides. Clearly, they picked Macy's side in this because they consider him to be, quote, a luminary in the field. I don't even know what that means in light of what we're discussing, but there it is. Macy is a bully of the worst kind. He's a bully who pretends to be doing you a favor when he pushes you around, even though he does it in a very passive-aggressive uh, way that really it is disarming i will compliment him on his uh, deceit in that he has a very disarming way of discussing all of this and you know makes you feel like he's doing you a great big favor when he's pushing you around with his philosophy of collaboration okay now let me jump in here now you're sure. pretty hard against this macy character now what's been his reaction to the the team rourke uh situation the team hail rourke you know if he, if he's such a bully and everything and he's hassling these other podcasters who are clearly quite spineless, you know, what's been the reaction from him to you guys? Has he contacted you guys and been like, hey, shut up about how bad Spiritcom really is or what? Well, I've contacted Macy since, yeah, and um, he basically, he considers all my emails to be probative of his Spiritcom claims and, and the Spiritcom story, and so he won't engage me in them. This is basically, I am, I am summarizing the extent of any further emails. So I guess the response, besides threatening podcasters and telling us he won't deliver evidence that he is the head of MetaScience or that he has some inside track on the Spiritcom story, besides delivering nothing in the way of evidence, uh, no, there's been no response. He just decided he will not communicate with, um, with me or Jim Hale any further. Um, my most recent communication was with him this summer by way of email when I requested some contact info for his co-author, Patricia Cubis. I decided I wanted to ask her and hear with my own ears if she had known the Spiritcom Dr. Mueller in the living. And um, while very aged, I trust her recollection to be what she wanted to say. I'm not saying her recollection was maybe accurate. I'm saying that she intended to tell me that she did not know of George Mueller in the living. And, of course, I didn't find that information by way of Mark Macy. He wouldn't help me. So uh, that was rather serendipitous, too, the way I came across that. But but there it is. Uh, No, to answer your question, Macy refuses to speak on the issue of his claims regarding meta-science and Spiritcom. Okay, and what about the ghost community as a whole? Now, obviously, the Spiritcom thing has been held up in such high regard by many people in the ghost community. Um, What's been their response to your work, or has your work sort of just been matriculating out so it hasn't really hit hit the community yet. Yeah, I would have to say if there's any trickling happening, it's a really slow stream. Uh, and this might be because of the kind of uh, rigorous approach Jim Hale and I take to the research process. You know, it's not for everyone. I understand that. And, of course, if it challenges people's belief system, this is, you know, the most difficult thing to do, to be really clear. Um, I know I've got my work cut out for me, but... Um, I find it a great deal of fun to do so, and I find the the extent of the Spiritcom story and all these findings to be, again, a lot more interesting uh, than just accepting the claims that this paranormal event happened. Yeah. But to answer your question, no, I haven't had a whole lot of interest from the paranormal community, probably not surprisingly. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, all right, can we move on to the Freedom of Information Act stuff? Uh, absolutely, yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. It's a good place to, to seal off the indictment of Mark Macy, except to say folks don't have to believe that um, that he uses endless references to science, scientific approach, 
methodology all over his websites and books and lectures. He constantly refers to science, scientific approaches and all this, but it's really just science when it suits him. Uh, so people can hear that for themselves, read it for themselves. They don't have to believe me, but they do have to ask why would someone be using the trappings and lingo of science only when it suits them. It may be for the same exact reason one might perpetuate the, mytho the mythological points of uh, Spiritcom contributing to the overall ethos of the dead can communicate with us through technologies, um, you know, meme. It's yeah. essentially a type of meme. So yeah, let's let's go to the FOIA. Um, you know, folks may find this surprising, but you can actually um, you can actually request information from your government. Uh, I did so on all the players in Spiritcom. Um, uh, oftentimes, if you request information from, let's say, the Department of Justice or CIA or FBI about people who are living, you'll need some sort of a <clears throat> like a release form. Yeah. But it's always good just to just to try. So what I did was. Re uh, uh, submitted FOIA requests to the CIA, FBI, and Department of Justice, respectively. The Freedom of Information Act, while, while quite long, it's posted on spiritcomstudy.com. Uh, people can read it for themselves. In addition to including all the names we've discussed so far, uh, I also included uh, my own name. And I have to sign my own waiver, because I am still alive. Uh, now, I received today a letter that all the people who are you know, surviving the Spiritcom story would need to sign uh, information release forms. So it doesn't look like I'll be getting any actual files on the likes of Macy or anyone else who's still alive and affiliated with the story. Uh, but all the other interesting folks, I, I hope to find some information. They uh, they bothered to send me back a letter to clarify that, you know, uh, results may yield if I were to comply with providing death certificates of those involved, like Dr. Mueller and William O'Neill and, and, the, and the like. So I'm yeah. going to follow up and do that. That was just today I received uh, uh, that letter. Now, the the Freedom of Information Act request itself, you, you've seen it. It's, it's pretty lengthy, but suffice it to say it includes all the information in a, in a kind of re a tightly recapitulated um, paragraph or two. Uh, laying out essentially all the points of the indictment, so folks can see that, or or simply uh, wait for the findings. Hopefully, maybe we do. If there's interesting FOIA findings, we might do a follow-up show. And the reason I continue with the FOIA findings um, is really it's it's not it's not out of some personal vendetta against the likes of Mark Macy. It's really because I think there's something to this psyops model to explain some of the high strangeness that surrounds the Spiritcom story. Okay, yeah, let's get into that because uh, that seems to be the next point in the research you've sent me. So I want to uh, sort of get into that, and then we can get into some some of the sort of wrap-up final, final questions. Absolutely. So uh, we've got a couple of models that we're pursuing, and these are going to take quite a while uh, because it is essentially a whole separate avenue of research. Uh, but here goes. The PSYOP model was hinted at earlier when Pew Harch – the man who popularized Uri Geller, CIA connections to Ira Einhorn, the unicorn killer, clearly a dude with some pretty nefarious uh, intelligence community connections. Yeah. Uh, Pew Harch was connected to Meek and Fuller, the man who wrote the official record of the uh, Spiritcom story in the Ghost of 29 Megacycles. So these are clearly of interest. So I continue to look into all those players. Um, however, in the way of modeling, actual modeling, 
um, I found by way of uh, by way of this show, in fact, um, learning of the strange case of Paul Benowitz. Hearing your shows with Greg Bishop led me to purchase his book, Project Beta. I won't go into that. I'll let folks listen to the archives, which is the best audio recollection of all the high strangeness surrounding the Paul Benowitz case. Um, you'll notice that Benowitz was a man driven to madness by the psychological operations of his own government. And while a full accounting of the story can be found in the book, Project Beta, I suggest that this is a pretty interesting analog to the Spiritcom story in the form of William O'Neill. Because under potential connections, I'm going to offer the question, who was Bill O'Neill? And could a psychological operations model like that employed uh, for Paul Benowitz been employed for William O'Neill for someone else's purposes? Well, as it turns out, quite interestingly, here's the finding so far. William O'Neill had Army intelligence connections by way of his early career in the late 40s. Um, he had an RCA connection by way of employment. That's interesting because Pew Harch's work with the Brazilian healer Arrigo when he was uh, uh, performing this research with Meek was a project sponsored by NASA, which included a researcher named John Lawrence, who was an engineer working for RCA on NASA satellite projects. Maybe, maybe nothing, but here are the overlaps. O'Neill also has experience on his resume with telemetry for the U.S. rocketry program. Now, so far as I know, folks, there is only one U.S. rocketry program that deals with space affairs, and that's NASA. Yeah. And so this is an interesting tie, clearly. He also was employed at one point by Hughes Aircraft. This is important because we'll, a little later on, just in a moment, when we consider a corporate espionage-type model, could this have been a, a Hughes-style inside job psyoping? Um, I don't want to give too much background on that, but if folks don't know, Howard Hughes employed many uh, forms of operations, psychological and otherwise, against uh, his enemies and even some of his friends. So uh, that's quite interesting. And there's even a really strange California connection. On page 106 of the Ghost of 29 Megacycles, it, it talks about how William O'Neill set up a business in California at one point. And what I'm researching right now is the potential that William O'Neill may have known either Patricia Cubis or the dead Spiricom Mueller when he was in the flesh. Oh, wow. Because this Mueller, remember, taught in California at Orange Coast College up to the mid-50s, and this would have been about the time uh, O'Neill had began the business in California, which later led to a concurrently running business in Pennsylvania, which later folded when he uh, came into the Spiricom story. So very interesting overlaps. I, again, I say file that under potential connections, but these are avenues of research that no one else has looked into. And this way of modeling potential psychological operations or conspiratorial angles uh, is the way to go because clearly there's something else to it. There's, there's some there there is what I propose, and so that's why we're looking into it. Okay. Now, the last psychological operation model is an interesting one. It's, it's basically the, like the corporate 
espionage, revenge as a motive type uh, model, quite interestingly, um, I propose one of two things could have happened. Since ultimately this was McDonnell money funding the Spiricom project, someone may have wanted to insert disinformation into the story to later expose it as patently absurd, thereby uh, uh, muddying the reputation of McDonald for funding such ridiculous research and perhaps gaining some contracts that McDonald would have otherwise uh, obtained himself. That's one potential of corporate espionage. Another one is, is rather, a rather human story. Um, the NASA Mueller, the real NASA Mueller, right? George E. Mueller, not George J. Mueller, who died at Orange Coast College, later appeared on the Spiricom recordings, according to William O'Neill and everyone else. Um, George Mueller, the NASA scientist, replaced someone named D. Brainerd Holmes as the head of manned spaceflight for NASA. And in the open literature, I find a pretty consistent reference to something that may have made Holmes, D. Brainerd Holmes, mad enough to get even with the NASA Mueller. Um, it shows that the NASA Mueller, by contrast of his excellent performance in getting the manned spaceflight back on track, so embarrassed the underperforming D. Brainerd Holmes that this upset him. So would D. Brainerd Holmes, here's the question we're pursuing again under this jurisprudence model, would D. Brainerd Holmes have gone to such lengths and employed maybe Howard Hughes-style tactics as an attempt to assassinate the character by way of guilt through association to the whole Spiritcom mess, yeah. somehow besmirch the reputation of the NASA scientist Mueller with this supposedly dead NASA scientist named Mueller. Um, so this is a puzzle piece in that particular mosaic, but again, these are all modeling approaches that we're taking. Okay. All right. Now you laid out this amazing story here about the about the spirit column and why you think it's it's uh, hokum. Let's sort of take a devil's advocate tack to this. And uh, I was reading the Rochelle Hawks article that you cited as well, and she sort of brings up the idea that the mundane nature of the recorded spirit column conversations lends credence to its veracity in that. You know, if they were going to pull off some kind of wild hoax, that, that it would be more uh, wild, and that it's actually rather, when you listen to the conversations, they're rather bland and technical. So uh, what do you think of that whole uh, argument? Yeah, and I, I do. I understand her perspective on that. Uh, and, in fact, she's referring to exactly what people will hear. They'll hear a pretty, a pretty mundane conversation after conversation occurring on the Spiritcom tapes. However, I kind of see things differently. I don't see that as actual evidence that lends itself to the veracity of the claims. I see that maybe as something that contributes to our understanding of who William O'Neill was as a, uh, as a manic schizophrenic. Uh, he may have been cognitively incapable of pulling off these complicated conversations one might have with the undead or the dead or whoever this Mueller was on the other end of the radio. Yeah. Now, to be really clear, there is someone speaking. So folks ought to go listen to some of the Spiritcom uh, clips themselves and hear the evidence we're talking about. Someone is speaking. So this cannot be confused with, like, um, EVP-type interpretations. This is an ongoing, clearly interactive conversation. So the question was, was it the man 
who had this ventriloquist skill set and was a schizophrenic? Was it someone performing a psychological operation upon him by way of intercepting the 29 megahertz signal between his transmitter and receiver? Uh, all these are possibilities, but I understand uh, Rochelle Hawke's interpretation. It's a common interpretation of the evidence, but given all the new findings, I would say these ridiculous conversations of enjoying carrots and cabbage and uh, discussing transistors and all this, it sounds more like someone having a conversation on a ham radio than it does someone truly finding out something important about the character and nature of the great beyond. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to make sure that I point out that I don't know specifically if Rochelle, I think that was more of a rhetorical question on her part than an uh Ascription, if that's even a word of of uh, belief. So let's just make sure that that's clear. Oh yeah, and to be really clear, um, again, I was only stating that she was correctly framing what evidence is there. I simply interpret it differently, and I, yeah. I believe she was posing the question the way you stated. Yeah, yeah. Now, if this was a hoax, why do you think they chose Miller? Or how do you think they chose Miller? Do you have a sort of uh, theory on that? Well. Because they could easily have put forth a name of someone that wouldn't be tracked back or made up a ah. name or something, you know. Yeah, you make a really good point. In other words, the story could have been a whole lot tighter were it to be intended to be truly convincing. And this leads me to the last PSYOP model I, I actually hesitate uh, to include because people cling kind of – to their religious beliefs, and I, I don't, I don't frame uh, this psyops model. I certainly don't present it uh, to be critical of uh, the Catholic laity. I want to say that up front. I was raised as a Catholic myself. I'm simply stating the fact that if one looks at the conceivably broadest uh, uh, idea of who might benefit from this, if we exclude the other psyop models, the organization that would benefit the most would be. Catholicism, the Catholic Church, the official uh, Catholic dumb, because while the Catholic Church has made claims of supporting EVP research, it's strange that they somehow deny access to spirits by way of a Ouija board, but would encourage access to spirits by way of a, a tape recorder. Yeah. Uh, so this is straining, I know. But if one is to honestly look at all possible psychological operations, if the Catholic Church were to insert disinformation into this story by way of a psychological operation upon William O'Neill, they would know a few things. They would know that this later could be unpacked and completely discredited, and there's great power in that form of inserting disinformation into a psychological operation, because you alone would hold the key later to unlock the box that shows it all to be a lie, and that would actually undo any credibility EVP and ITC may have gained up to that point in popular culture. Maybe not among totally fringe believers with the mindset made up, but certainly among any serious consideration of EVP and ITC as a paranormal phenomenon. Yeah, but on that end, then, but you're the one that's coming out with the information, not any sort of authority figure to, to you know, as a means to an end. So what do you think? Do you think you beat them to the punch? Ah, I'm a part of the Catholic conspiracy. No, actually, I'm serious. Uh, just, just kidding. Really, to answer your question directly, I don't think they ever expected anyone to look this deeply into the story. Yeah. And the only folks who may have would be folks who would either look at it askant keep a good distance from it or recognize it for what it was and stay the hell out of it. Like, I'm pretty sure the intelligence community, if they if they looked at this, and I think they may have, 
uh, you know, Pihorich ties at all, they would have seen this as a psyop, and they would have seen it for what it was. Um, not saying that the Catholic Church and our intelligence communities collaborated. What I'm saying is they would have left it alone so far as knowing what it was and leaving it at that to see how it unfolded, because the players were essentially really not that important unless you're going to consider, through some guilt by association of name, the NASA Mueller. Yeah. And then, all right, so we kind of already established the motivations for a hoax, so we can kind of skip that. So what now you say... They sort of brought out the findings in 83, um, and that the, the communication between Mueller and, uh, or Miller and, and O'Neill died down over a year or so, and then they brought out the findings. That's the story. Mm-hmm. Since then, what became of the Spiritcom and the, and the people behind the Spiritcom stuff? Obviously, they passed away, but what, you know, uh, you'd think that this thing would keep going and going, but it sounds like it kind of fell off the radar after that. Well, no, to the contrary. I, I argue it has legs. And in fact, I do want to, I want to clarify the actual date. I found the actual embargoed until April 6, 10 a.m., 1982 press release from the National Press Club. Okay. So that was the actual date. Um, uh, But, yeah, to be clear, it does have legs. This story is perpetuated not as a – not as a story of fact, but I think it's perpetuated as a part of the ethos, or if you're familiar with uh, memetics, as introduced by Dawkins and uh, Susan um, Blackmore, mm-hmm. it's essentially an idea that is infectious among those who are predisposed to this idea. So it's spread that way, and it's spread without critical thinking faculties in use, so it's, it's extra cognitive in its adoption. People aren't really looking too closely. So uh, I argue, I would argue uh, the exact opposite, that this story has legs and it has worked its way so deeply into the life-after-death ethos of the paranormal community as to be considered the best evidence of real two-way communication between the living and the dead by way of a technological device. Okay, yeah. I meant just like the actual spirit calm. Oh, you mean the actual device? Yeah. Oh, I understand how the stories become part of the mythos. I mean, that's that's kind of how we're why we're talking. Oh, about sure. It. So, I mean, yeah, the spear comet de- device itself, because um, yeah, a lot of folks say, hey, if this thing were real, you know, you know, where the hell is it? Mm-hmm. Um, the spear comet device itself is stored in an abandoned uh, hangar. Um, monthly fees are paid by Thomas Pratt, the true guardian of the spear the rightful president of MetaScience Foundation, a man who I have to say I consider to be generally speaking, quite level-headed, critical himself of the story. He thinks it through. How did he get involved in the story in the first place, then? Oh, because um, he does have a predisposition towards spiritism. Okay. To be clear, that is his religious pursuit. But um, that doesn't mean in later years, after the death of George Meek, he hasn't come to think through some of some of the evidence in his possession. Yes, he was like Um, friends with Meek and stuff, and then he ended up getting willed all this stuff. Exactly, because he was the best man for the job at the time. He's highly organized, highly intelligent. He had a way of unifying people through the uh, Unlimited Horizons newsletter. Uh, so there was a lot of upside for Meek to leave this individual uh, the rights to metascience. Yeah. And to be clear, Thomas Pratt never did any of the other things that uh, uh, Mark Macy himself did. You know, Thomas Pratt did not solicit funds from the mailing list like Mark Macy did, even though Thomas Pratt might have had every right to. 
being the head of an organization that needed further funding when the money's dried up. But essentially, he's been paying for these airplane hangar storage fees on his own. He's been restoring some of the equipment on his own, you know. So I, I think he's a straight-up guy. Um, we'll agree, we don't agree on everything, but there it is. Spiricom, the device was real. The Mark IV itself and all associated technology up to and including the Mark IV is in an airplane hangar in Florida, and the keys belong to Thomas Pratt. All right. Um, now, you've uh, you've obviously unearthed a wealth of information here. Are you planning to put this together as a book? I know you just got the Spiritcom study website up and running, but uh, what, what's the future hold for you as far as this research goes and, and presenting to the public? Yeah, I would love to um, formalize all this into a kind of culminating uh, work like a book. Uh, right now, yeah, I, I could easily do that, but I'm so plugged in to the PSYOPs angle and finding out just who William O'Neill was. Did he know the living Mueller or Dr. Patricia Cubis, who co-authored the work with Mark Macy? So I'm actually pursuing that while organizing the work into a book. So, um, and I'm certainly open to uh, offers. Uh, I'd love to be, let's say, I paraview Pocket Press or someone like Adventures Unlimited, I think, would be well suited for this kind of uh, this kind of work. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of response you get, especially because it it, it goes against such a popular story. You know what I mean? It'll it'll be you could be an additional chapter right there in the book if, if it takes so long to get it published because no one wants to go against the grain. Oh yeah, wouldn't that be wild if I get more out of the government by way of FOIA requests than I, than I do out of anyone interested in publishing the book? That'd be wild. Where can people look at this at this uh, thorough research that you've uncovered? Uh, well, we go to www.spiricomstudy.com. Uh, all the evidence is laid out there. People click on the gear icons, and it'll take them to all the actual documents. To be really clear, I back up every statement of fact that I make. When conclusions are drawn from the evidence, I state them as such, and they're always based on the evidence. So folks do not have to believe me because I'm Dr. Rourke or because I claim to be some authority. Uh, to the contrary, this research conducted by Jim Hale and I could have been conducted by anyone, and we're quite frankly surprised it hadn't been. Uh, and secondly, folks can go to um, gobeyondnow.com. Um, this is not exactly a breakthrough in paranormal podcast world. But Jim and I are going to collaborate on um, posting some audio, which will be nothing more than conversations we record, um, posting audio on a sub-site of GoBeyondNow.com called The Devil's Advocate. Quite interestingly, we're going to ask um, some of those kinds of questions about, well, a lot of stuff in the paranormal. Maybe folks should uh, should tune in for that. I'd say by by November we'd have some of that posted. Awesome, awesome. All right. Uh, is there anything else you think we should talk about, or are we all set? Well, if, if folks understand that uh, uh, I believe the role of science is to investigate the unexplained and not explain the uninvestigated, I think they'd know exactly where I'm coming from. Now, a lot of folks argue for a, a new paradigm regarding paranormal, perinormal phenomenon, and, and it, while it's true, there, it seems philosophy, physics, Metaphysics seem to be converging on what could be a completely new science of possibilities. The important word in that is science. And uh, I suggest we maintain that kind of ethos rather than just feed a, a, a mythological story that kind of reinforces our preconceived notions of the afterlife at all. Absolutely, definitely. 
Uh, well, Dr. Stephen Rourke, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been enlightening. It's been fascinating. You've done a great job of uncovering this story. We needed someone to really dig into this and uh, put it to rest, I hope, eventually. I think that should be obviously the long-term goal of this is to is to once and for all straighten out the Spiritcom story. And uh, too many people in the paranormal world, you know, they hear the story. It sounds really great. They want to jump on it, and you know, then they tell their friends like it's some like it's a, like it's an absolute when that's not the case. And uh, and and it's people like you who we need to come along afterwards and pick up the crumbs and straighten out the story so these things don't keep getting perpetuated. If only we had you in the 1980s when this first <laughs> came about, maybe uh, we could have cut it off at the pass, but... Oh, I'm sorry. In the 80s, I was pounding beers and listening to the Beastie Boys. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, but, so, you know, like I said, uh, in this paranormal world, so many people are ready to jump on the, any train that comes along that looks like it's headed in the destination that they want to go to that uh, often they don't, they don't pay attention to uh, who the conductor is, we'll say. So I appreciate that the work that you've done, and I think you've done a lot of fascinating insight into the true story of Spiritcom. I look forward to your work and seeing where this goes and, and seeing it put out in, uh, in book form, hopefully, in the future. Thanks, Tim. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio, Season 4. How about that, Dr. Stephen Rourke? The guy is amazing. i got to tell you, he is just a barrel of energy when it comes to the Spiritcom story. Big, big thanks to Dr. Stephen Rourke, of course, for coming on the show. You can find out more on him at www.spiritcomstudy.com, S-P-I-R-I-C-O-M, study.com. Check it out. Up next normally is BOA Audio listener feedback, but we're already... A day late in putting the program together, and it's episode two, so I want to just get this one out to the masses as it is. So the Halloween hangover theme actually has some re- relevance, even though it'll be coming out probably almost on November 4th. We're going to bring back BOA Audio listener feedback next week, I promise. Until then, here are the three ways to get a hold of me. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to Ben All of America and click the contact button. And last but not least, go to Ben All of America and click the forum button, and that'll take you to the official BOA forum, which resides under the name of the US of E.com. Those are the three ways. Get in touch with me. Send me your questions, your comments, your critiques. I can take it. Don't worry. I'm always interested in hearing from the BOA audio listeners. And as anyone who's written to me can attest, I do write back. Nearly everyone who writes to me, some of them slip through the cracks. I apologize to those people, but I'd say about 90% of the people who write to me do get a response regarding their inquiries or guest suggestions and what have you. And we'll bring back BOA Audio listener feedback next week. Be there or be square. It's time for the thanks portion of the show. Let's roll through the list. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna. Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. They are the top-notch BOA staff of writers. They contribute amazing reading material that you can find at Ben All of America Monday through Friday. Ben All of America, not just a podcast. It is three to four fresh opinion columns from the BOA staff every week. As we say, week in and week out, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. As you'll hear in a moment, next week is the first of what will hopefully be many international 
editions of Banal of America Audio. We're going to be talking to Adam Davies over in the UK. Why I'm telling you this before I do the preview is because I am going to ask for donations here. We skipped out on this last week because we didn't want to besmirch the season premiere, but that's in the past. And now it's time for me to ask you to make a donation to Banal of America. How do you do that? Simply go to the BOA homepage or the BOA Audio Archive page, click the PayPal button, and send us a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping Banal of America and BOA Audio freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, as I said, Adam Davies. He is the author of Extreme Expeditions, Travel Adventures, Stalking the World's Mystery Animals. Just a fascinating, jam-packed edition of BOA Audio next week. We're going to be talking about all the different expeditions and adventures that Adam Davies has been on, including his travels to the Congo to search for the Mokele Mamembe, hunting the Orang Pendek in Sumatra, investigating the Mongolian Death Worm, and other treks around the world seeking truly unique cryptids. We'll also delve into the human side of crypto expeditions, talking about what makes a good expedition team, the political roadblocks to international work, how Adam's family feels about his adventures, and much, much more. On top of all that, we're going to be covering alien big cats, the cellular serpent, American Bigfoot, the kill versus no-kill debate with regards to crypto creatures, and, as you've come to expect from us, tons and tons more. Trust me, folks, I listened to this one already a couple weeks ago, and I was just blown away by the sheer breadth of stuff we cover. A whole range of cryptozoological topics next week with Adam Davies, author of Extreme Expeditions, Travel Adventures, Stalking the World's Mystery Animals. On that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. It's great to be back. I apologize for the delay. Hopefully we can get all of the pistons firing here at the BOA headquarters and get the audio out to you on a more timely basis from here on out. I apologize again humbly for that. And I also thank you for listening to another edition of BOA Audio. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, signing off.